HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Erin Fairbanks. Today, we are on the line with Beverly Bell, author of Harvesting Justice, Transforming Food, Land, and Agriculture Systems in the Americas. Beverly, welcome to the show. Thank you, Erin. I'm so happy to be with you. Well, I'm excited to tuck in, but before we kind of take a look at, at the work in Harvesting Justice, I think that we should give our listeners a little bit of a sense of your really varied um, background. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe you can take us through some of your some of your recent work and kind of how you came to uh, the position of writing this book, uh, Harvesting Justice. Sure. The book uh, is a production of Other Worlds which is a small women's collaborative based in New Orleans uh, that I coordinate. And we work with grassroots social movements all over the world. Wow, I wake up in the morning and I think I get paid for this. We work with um, a lot of small farmers and women and workers and students and people who are organizing to create just, economies and just societies, and then to bring to the U.S. a lot of the victories because so much change is happening, but very little of it is known in this country, and we need to be more inspired and get more activated. So I have had the incredible fortune of doing this work full-time for 32 years through different organizations, but always focused on... uh, trying to be a good citizen of the world and stand with people in the U.S. or elsewhere to find ways to strengthen the alternatives and then spread them. And a lot of that work has been around land and around agriculture. And so 
I spent five years researching the case studies in this book and co-wrote them up with my uh, co-worker, Tori Field, who's also a farmer who runs a CSA farm in Western Mass. And we wrote it just to um, spread the word and let people know what's possible and that we're not condemned to live within the food system and the economic tyranny that is destroying um, landed and landless peoples around the world, but that we something else different is surging, and we can help to um, spread it. So one of the things you said was that a lot of these kind of success stories or uh, models that, that are working are not making their way back to, to the U.S. Those stories are not being heard here. What, why do you think that is? Well, we have an extremely finely honed propaganda machine, and that is why people like you, Erin, are so important, and Heritage Radio to bring out something different. But we have an extraordinarily um, tightly held corporate media, and we have a lot of lies coming from Washington. And, you know, George Bush told everybody after the uh, Iraq War started to go shopping. So there's a big effort in this country, I think, Um, and it's not really a conspiracy. It's just, I mean, it's not a conspiracy. It's just um, a lot of active efforts through which people can stay happily asleep and therefore not protest and not um, work to change power structures and work to reclaim democracy. Certainly a lot of that is happening, but we, we clearly are not winning yet, and we need a lot more. And kind of kind of looking at the the lack of spaces for this uh, this information and these stories to come through I mean obviously I think your the, the your book that you co-wrote is is a sign that things are able to kind of you know m- make it through I'm wondering if there are other kind of pockets that you found throughout your you know kind of extensive history working in this field that give you comfort here in the U.S., you know, organizations or academic institutions that, um, you know, like Heritage Radio and like the work you're doing are um, kind of beacons for folks and things that we might want to highlight and point people to as resources? Oh, gosh, there are so many, and they often fly under the radar. Um, we listed, there are literally, um, think well over a thousand organizations and resources listed in this book, Harvesting Justice, which is a nonprofit book that has a sliding scale and nobody can, I mean, anyone can have one, whether they can buy one or not. We would love to give them away. That's the point. It was exactly to collect these resources. There are grassroots organizations. There are community groups. There are fantastic national advocacy organizations. Um, there, there is radio like your own and press just dedicated to this um, sort of work. There's one thing out of the myriad of examples I could give that to me is so exciting, and it is a only two-year-old, a baby coalition um, really working to grow called the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance, and hopefully we can speak about food sovereignty in a minute, but what this is, is such a cool network of indigenous farmers and immigrants' rights activists and young urban gardeners and anti-racist warriors 
and um, gosh, all kinds of folk land reform um, people working to bring together the various strands of the food movement and to add unity and strength behind a deep, deep transformation that goes beyond buying local tomatoes, which is a great thing to do, but which is not going to change the whole food system. So my organization, Other Worlds, has been so excited about this development. We're on the steering committee. We've thrown ourselves into it fully. It is a fantastic way that people who are organized can connect up with something much larger. Excellent. Well, I do want to tuck into, you know, there's so many, so many times, I think, in conversations um, around the food system and, and in the food world, there's these terms that I feel like people say, like food sovereignty. And I, I have a sense, I think, of, of what that means. But I often find myself kind of struggling to to give somebody a definition or to explain it in a way that I feel like is encompassing all the things that are included there. So maybe we can start by kind of tucking into what is it we're talking about when we talk about food sovereignty. Okay, I'm so glad. I would love to do that. This is a term, actually, Erin, that has been around for, I don't know, 15 years or so, and it has been um, used very, very deeply. I mean, not just a term, but the whole ideology and the series of practices and um, demands and advances behind it have been very, very deeply at play for quite a long time in Latin America and in Europe and in Asia and in Africa. But again, like so many things, we're kind of the last to know up here. And so that there is now a U.S. Food Sovereignty Network uh, alliance is so exciting. But Food sovereignty is not, I mean, the, the, the term is confusing, but, yeah, when we break it down, I think that people will recognize themselves in some part of it. So maybe we could just start by background of just mentioning food security, which is a concept, I think, that has spread and most people know about it. Food security says that everyone should have the right to eat adequately. Well, Great. No dispute there. Absolutely, that's correct. And yet, if you look, for example, at um, those images that we sometimes see on TV in a place of drought where folks are standing up to get, you know, handouts from care or save the children or something, okay, so maybe they're getting enough food, doubtful, but maybe, but that surely doesn't address all of the problems that got them into that drought and got them into that situation in the first place. So food sovereignty goes further. It says, yes, everyone, of course, should have enough to eat, but it's also concerned with every aspect of how that food is produced and distributed. So it looks at the quality of life and income of food producers and farmers and farm workers and others up and down the food supply chain. It looks at the impact of agriculture on the earth. So um, it focuses on how we treat the land and the ocean. This next part um, is very, very important, and that is the question of international trade policies because most people in the world do not have food sovereignty because corporations have taken over their food supply, and we can talk more about that. So we we have to change trade policies to protect domestic agriculture everywhere. So really, 
from all the different angles, I would say that at its root, food sovereignty is about people and every nation having the power to define and create the food systems of which they are a part, not corporations, not elite governments. It's really about democratizing our food system. So one of the the things that I feel like is confusing for people and is confusing for me as as I've kind of thought through and um, learned more about how 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 this idea plays out in reality. In particular, I think um, what always comes to mind is is moments of kind of disaster relief. You know, after floods or or famines or earthquakes or other kind of natural disasters, where there's kind of an immediate there's an immediate need for for food and there is you know a, a system of food aid kind of in place that the the US takes part in that i think goes you know pl- plays a role in in um providing a a base level of you know caloric intake for folks but i think misses out on all of the kind of other tenants uh, that are included in food sovereignty and i'm wondering you know if how how we understand kind of moments of crisis versus just kind of the general landscape. I mean, are those kind of, do we need to chunk those solutions or ideas out separately or are they intertwined? They're all intertwined. Actually, everything is intertwined. But I know what you mean, that could this just be an exception because of the, um, because of the nature of crisis? Well, maybe we could take the case of Haiti. I've actually just published a second book last month on Haiti. I've worked there for 35 years and um, have been very, very involved since that horrible earthquake of um, three and a half years ago that killed somewhere between 250,000 and 300,000 and left homeless about one in five people in the whole nation. So what happened there was that there was an immediate response and just massive amounts of food aid was sent down. Well, okay, naturally, sending food in the face of a disaster when people are hungry should be a logical crisis. The problem was that there were still farmers trying to grow their food, and some of us were working very hard so that the international aid would go to the local farmers to buy up their food and support them and support local agriculture but they were completely disregarded. And instead what happened was that um, agribusiness, mainly rice producers from Arkansas, got contracts or used contracts that they had been given by Bill Clinton and just started um, dumping their rice in Haiti. And I would like to point out that all of this um, aid through these contracts are subsidized by our tax dollars. And so that aid typically did not, in large measure, give people, unfortunately, the caloric um, intake that they needed, but went to fuel a black market. And meanwhile, I don't know how many thousands of Haitian farmers who had grown rice were no longer able to. They had been put out of business by this international aid. And then we saw Monsanto, with all of its disgusting opportunism, jump in and um, give 550 tons of seed. Um, They said it was humanitarian relief. Well, you might think, okay, well, farmers lost their crops. They need seeds. Actually, that was not the case. 
um, there were adequate seeds available. What there wasn't was money to buy the seeds. But Monsanto is so crafty, they were giving hybrid seeds, which cannot be um, replanted the next year because the trait of the, the traits, the genetic traits of the second generation come out different. And so uh, what Monsanto was doing was preparing um, farmers to be hooked into a cycle of dependence, whereby the first year they got those seeds for free, but then because of the nature of hybrid seeds, they would have to buy those seeds in the future. And so just as one example of the ways that people around the world are organizing, boy, do I love this story, uh, uh, farmers called this a declaration of war on their native seed stock, and they gathered up all the Monsanto seeds that they could find. They had a 10-mile march from a peasant village to a town, and then they set fire to that pile of seeds. So just to show that there is a good way and a bad way, or many good ways and many bad ways to do everything, but when the, um, when the deliverers and the suppliers of food aid are agribusiness who have their profit uh, margins you know, front and central, um, the, the focus is not going to be ensuring that everyone can eat and everyone can produce. And I think, I mean, one of the things that I find challenging in these conversations is is often, you know, people hear stories like the one you've just shared and, you know, you're talking about things on this kind of global scale. And to me, it's always like a little hard to kind of wrap my head around around things that that large and also a little hard to wrap my head around, um, you know, businesses that are motivated surely, you know, solely by a, a profit incentive uh, and don't take into account the, um, the the short or long-term impacts that their, quote-unquote, like donations or aids or gifts um, will be having. I mean, it seems like in this weird way kind of a, a, a PR tool that uh, you know, make, just makes me feel pretty g- gross, basically. And I, I think for kind of the average you know, American citizen, like that is a lot to tuck into. And I feel like as, as, as active citizens here, we respond more to kind of the, the personal stories or stories that are um, relatable to our life. And I think that's often a challenge um, for, I found it to be a challenge when engaging folks in these types of conversations. And what's so interesting about looking at things in, in a case study method is it gives you kind of stories and examples to point to that highlight some of the different um, aspects of, you know, how how do we kind of think about these really complex um, and interwoven systems and how do we make decisions or understand that we are not the people to be making the decisions. And what I want to do when we come back from a short break is just kind of walk through some of the other tenants of food sovereignty. And maybe you can just do us the, the favor of giving us some kind of more stories and more examples to, to look to to help us kind of understand uh, how, how we can engage and how we can start thinking about collectively the, these issues in a way that I think feels more empowering um, cause I think that's often a challenge for me. I kind of get overwhelmed and throw my hands up and I'm like, oh, it's too big and crazy. 
you know, I I find I often work best if there's like something specific I can kind of latch on to to explore and, and learn and understand through. So hang tight. We're going to take just a short break and when we come back. We will start talking into some of those stories. You're listening to Leaving by Dead Stars on the Heritage Radio Network.org. Stay tuned for more from the Farm Report. Like what you hear so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. Thanks so much. If you just tuned in, you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. This is the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we're on the line with Beverly Bell, co-author of Harvesting Justice. So, Beverly, before the break, you know, you kind of, through the Haiti example, gave us a sense of, you know, a, a, a wrong way to to provide relief um, that that keeps the um, rights uh, of small farmers and local food systems in mind. Um, what what would be an example of kind of the right way, or what is a, uh, an example of that you've seen that's been kind of uh, sensitive to the local food economy, the local farming economy in the aftermath of a disaster? Oh, I'm so glad you raised the question of stories before the break and that you raised the um, matter of, of positive examples. That's what this book is all about. That's what our work at Other Worlds is all about. That's what these movements around the world are focused on. It's uh, The problems are there and they're huge, but really what is exciting and what is motivating and inspiring are just the incredible wealth of actions that are happening these days. Well, in the case of the Haiti matter, um, Mons- let's just take Monsanto for a second. Um, there is a campaign in the U.S. called Millions Against Monsanto, and your listeners can um, check out the website and it's run by the Organic Consumers Association, and they can find ways to um, take easy actions that can help raise a voice to change some of those policies that Monsanto, for example, uses. There are very wonderful ways um, in countries experiencing disaster and not, and including in the U.S., to help um, 
everybody be able to access food. So whether it's aid or whether it's local production, um, one very cool movement that is surging is called the food justice movement. It's certainly part of the larger movement, but it's specifically talking about the fact in the U.S. that there are a lot of so-called food deserts. That is um, almost always low-income, usually people of color neighborhoods in the U.S., where there is not one single grocery store in the neighborhood, and so people have to either eat at McDonald's or maybe as another option they might have, you know, cans of pork and beans at the local um, corner store. But people are changing this. For example, community-supported agriculture is uh, a way that more and more people are accessing local food by making a direct linkage between the consumer and the farmer. And it's growing and growing as our farmers' markets, which are both wonderful things. Well, there's a problem in that community-supported agriculture, or CSA um, memberships, cost quite a bit and so are prohibitive to a lot of low-income people. As a result, the wonderful organization Just Food, which operates in all five boroughs of New York, has um, come up with eight different ways that everyone can access CSAs. Uh, the one I love most is called Share a Share, and it, there they have worked with um, CSAs in high-income neighborhoods and found that there was just a tremendous willingness of those CSAs to pay a little bit more for each individual or family to pay a little more and then subsidize CSAs in low-income neighborhoods. Um, that's one example to me of a solution being made. Another that I, another story I love to tell people, oh, my gosh, because this says that anything is possible, is not in the U.S. It's in the city of Belo Horizonte, which is a city of several million people in Brazil. Here, um, they decided not only that um, food is a right, as we talked about in the beginning, but also that, that citizens were going to push their government to guarantee that right. And so they got the city council to pass an ordinance that it was going to do everything possible to create zero hunger. Well, you might say that's crazy. Hunger is inevitable, and everyone, people are always going to be hungry. In fact, that is not true. There is um, enough food on the planet to feed about 12 billion people, but our population is only 7 billion. So there is absolutely enough food. It's just a question of access. So the city of Belo Horizonte got very activated, did things like um, dedicate more of its budget to ensure that 140,000 kids could have free school lunches every day. They worked with farmers to set up farmers markets in low-income neighborhoods. They did all sorts of things, and they now believe that there is not one hungry person in the entire city. To me, that says that every problem has a solution, and if we are creative enough, whether we're working at small scales, which, as you say, are so important, or at huge scales, we can take the power back from those who have been controlling uh, the food supply chain, and we can reclaim it and democratize it. Thank you. One of the other tenets of food sovereignty that I was surprised to learn about was the focus on on women um, 
uh, you know, the need to, to privilege the rights and needs of women and recognize them as really the world's primary food producers and providers. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why, why, why is it that, that there's a need to, to focus on, on a preferencing and protecting women in the space of food production? Oh, I'd love to talk about that, and also that's another great example of what you were asking about, real stories of what people without um, huge access to money or power can do in their everyday lives. Well, if you think of a woman, you probably have somewhere in your image um, that she is the one who provides for the family the food. I mean, you know, right from our very breasts, when our babies are born, we feed them, and then women go out and... In most parts of the world, they collect the food. In many places, they grow the food. Women are the ones who typically do the shopping and the cooking. They have to struggle very hard to make sure that their man, if they have one, has food to go work tomorrow. And, of course, that all of their kids and their elderly grandmother are fed. Women also produce, as you say, most of the food around the world, plant and harvest. And yet, women have the far less access than men to economic means of survival. So women and their children are more likely to be hungry and they don't control land typically. So here is a great example of where women around the world, not you know congresswomen, but just people like us, just everyday women have gotten together and said that they want to have a greater seat at the table and they are really asserting their voices within their community organizations and at the national level, too, and making sure that policies that are made, well, either by their city government or the national government, put women at the forefront, and that in their very own neighborhood, they organize with other women to, uh, I'm thinking here of rural women who are farmers, um, to make sure that they can get access to the tools that they need and um, that land can be put into their name, not just their husbands. And also a big part of this that farmers have been working on around the world is to stop violence against women because whether you are a farmer or not, of course, that is primordial. So women you know, still are extremely disadvantaged uh, in most every society and yet in the food and farming movement, you are really seeing their voices come to the fore. Excellent. Um, I am curious, you know, looking at um, putting an end to, to trade rules or inter, international agreements that, that put profits first, um, how do we how do we rethink trade policy in a way that that preferences the, the tenets of food sovereignty. I mean, how how do we as kind of individuals start to think about dismantling these global systems? Um, you know, what are kind of spaces for entree to, to that work? Well, trade rules are so interesting, the way that they play out. They are really a mirror into global power structures. So consider the fact that there are heavy, heavy protections on farming in this country. We talked about the fact that Monsanto, like Cargill and Archer Daniels Midland and other enormous food um, suppliers and distributors, um, get enormous subsidies from the U.S. government. So farm subsidies were immense 
originally to support false small farmers in periods of bad years to ensure that they had at least a minimum income, but they have shifted, like so many things in this country, to instead privileging the great corporations. And so even though we have those protections here at home, our government demands that many that other countries do not have protections. So one type of protection is a tariff, and for those who don't really understand this, it's actually pretty simple. It just says that if you're going to export your products to another country, you have to pay some tariff to the government when you do so. So the U.S. went around, along with the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund and the World Trade Organization, and they make, um, a, well, they put a lot of pressure on, on low-income and middle-income countries in order to uh, put, drop their, their trade tariffs. And, for example, to go back to Haiti, trade tariffs on rice used to be 50%. That is, to export rice to Haiti, you would have to pay 50% of the cost of the, of the um, food to the government to have the right to go up, you know, to, to export that food there. Well, they dropped, they forced it uh, in Haiti, the trade tariff on rice, down to 2%. Wow. So that's part of the reason why um, so many farmers have been going out of business in low countries, uh, low-income countries around the world and um, losing their, their income and their ability to survive. So what small farmers everywhere are demanding is that there be a new working of trade rules so that they are just and that not that they just privilege the profits of the exporters. So to give you one more example of how people without much money or power took their matters into their hands, Via Campesina, which is the largest international coalition of food producers in the world, they work in more than 70 countries, including the U.S., organize their members. And again, these are a lot of illiterate farmers and indigenous farmers and farm workers who, uh, from Mexico who went to the city of Cancun when the World Trade Organization was having its meeting some years back uh, and when they were figuring out ways to increasingly get their hands, get the hands of multinationals on uh, the food supply chain around the world. And actually, these people in Cancun shut the thing down. They actually forced the agricultural uh, trade discussions that the World Trade Organization was having. They forced it. Uh, they forced the meetings to end. So one more way, you know, that people are saying, we can't let this happen. And really, the core of all this, whether it's the mothers who were involved in getting that food program in Brazil or the migrant farm workers in the U.S., Again, people without money or power who have won um, campaigns over McDonald's and Burger King and some of the biggest corporations in the U.S., really the core of it all is just reclaiming our democracy and saying we're not going to allow policies to be made for us that disadvantage us and our sisters and brothers around the world. We are going to be a part, whether it's in our community, in our city, at whatever level, at our school, we are going to be part of standing up and speaking out and taking back the power. Well, I think that's that's really uh, accessible. 
um, advice and, and a great way for, for folks to think about engaging at, at their local level. Beverly, unfortunately, we are out of time. For folks who are interested in, in purchasing the book or supporting the, the work of other worlds, what's the, what's the best way for them to do so? If they want to get the book, which, again, is sliding scale, and anyone can have one if they don't have $5 or whatever it costs to buy one, they can go to harvesting-justice.org. That's harvesting-justice.org, and there they will find so many examples of ways that they can become involved at easy and local levels. Thank you so much, and thanks to everyone out there for tuning in. Thank you, Erin. It's great to be with you. This, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, are available for free on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you believe in what we're doing, please take a moment to click that Donate button and become a member today. You can also find our programs on iTunes via Stitcher Smart Radio. Um, And always make sure you're tuning in. Thanks so much for listening. It's been another episode of The Farm Report. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Today's program has been brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit internationalculinarycenter.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. What's hot at the green market? You're about to find out now. It's the Grow NYC Market Update. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Grow NYC Market Update, the best place to find weekly updates on what's hot at the green markets of New York City. And we are checking in today with Caroline. Welcome. Where are we heading today? Hi, Erin. Thanks for having me. Um, This week, we're going to talk all about our brand new market right outside of the Barclays Center. We're pretty excited to be in such a symbolically important spot right in the heart of Brooklyn. Um, The market runs right along Flatbush Avenue, and the Barclays Center sign is there, and the Jumbotron advertising our green market um, is in bright lights right above. It's pretty snazzy. Um, and then with the Atlantic Terminal right there with all the trains, 2, 3, 4, 5, D, N, and R trains, um, the market is equally convenient for commuters going, up, going to work for the day and for visitors playing hooky on a Wednesday. Awesome. So what can we be uh, expecting to find at the market? Well, who are the farmers? What are some of the products we should be looking for? 
Yeah, it has a great lineup of fruit and veggies, baked goods, honey, um, and some fresh wild-caught fish. Uh, when I visited last week, Tolly, the market manager, was already sampling out pieces of Jersey Farm's super sweet cantaloupe um, to the morning commuters. And the farmer himself, Hector Perez, had these little personal-sized cantaloupes for sale, which I think are perfect for breakfast. I've actually been cutting them in half, scooping out the seeds, and then filling it with yogurt from Goodale Farms and also honey from Apple State um, Hilltop Family Farms. Um, and it's like a perfect little melon breakfast bowl. Um, Goodale also has a variety of cheeses on offer, which I think would go really well with any of the breads um, or the savory baked goods from Central Bakery. I was uh, eyeing in particular their raisin walnut roll for myself. Um, and if you're looking for some gluten-free or vegan um, baked good options, Body and Soul is your place to go. Uh, while Rick's Picks has some delicious pickles, I'm particularly addicted to their smokra, which is um, some pickled smoky okra. And I even save the brine um, when I'm finished with the okra to add to my Bloody Marys. Um, Terhune's Orchard display has a beautiful display of colorful peaches, plums, and other stone fruits, and it's really hard to pass by their stand without stopping. Um, I'm pretty committed to yellow peaches, but last week I tried a sample of their white peaches, and I'm kind of converted. Um, <laughs> and then one of the greatest assets, assets of this market is the fresh wild-caught fish um, and shellfish that's being brought in by American Seafood. Uh, it's great to have a midweek seafood source in such a central location in Brooklyn. And Warren, the fisherman himself, is on hand, and he is just a wealth of information on everything from fishing practices that they use to what's in season um, to how to cook and prepare whatever you end up buying. Um, and Warren was actually gracious enough to take some green market staff and market managers out clamming in the bay this past week, um, and we learned a lot and we had a fantastic time. Awesome. Well, I know, you know, being outside the Barclay Center, there's obviously tons going on inside the center, but what should folks be, you know, looking to do if they're planning an outing in that area of Brooklyn, you know, some pre- or post-market activities? Yeah, definitely. Um, so there's, of course, the Barclay Center right there. They have a ton of board, sporting events and other entertainment. Um, I was just perusing their fall calendar, and they have a couple of cool shows coming up, including Phoenix on October 2nd, um, Selena Gomez on October 16th, and Justin Timberlake on November 7th. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, the, our favorite Brooklyn Nets will return in November. Um, but besides Barclay Center, BAM is a short walk away um, where you can catch a late afternoon movie at their Rose Cinema or at the Harvey Theater. Um, there's also a ton of shopping, whether you prefer to search for some goods, thrift store finds at Beacon's Closet or hit, hit up Target. Um, I also, one of my favorite neighborhood bars is Charlene's. Uh, it's right on Flatbush and has a great laid-back vibe, a jukebox, board games, um, and really good beer at pretty good prices. Um, and then, of course, the Long Island Railroad is right there at Atlantic Terminal, so um, I think a great summer day would be to hit up the market there, get some snacks for the beach, and then hop on the train and head out to Fire Island or Long Beach or whatever your favorite um, Long Island beach is. Awesome. Well, it sounds like more than enough uh, activities to fill a, a number of Wednesdays, so I think we should kind of start clearing the calendar now. Um, what else is happening uh, over at the Green Market? I know it's a busy time of year for you. What should we be looking forward to in the coming weeks? 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so this week is National Farmer's Market Week, um, so definitely celebrate by hitting up your neighborhood market or wherever you are, hit up a farmer's market. Um, the Staten Island Mall Green Market has a pretty cool cooking demonstration coming up this Saturday, August 10th, um, from 11 to 1 p.m., and the uh, you know, customers can visit the Market Info tent. There will be a cooking demonstration by the Ethnic Foodways Project um, showing people how to make traditional Mexican food um, cooked using ingredients um, from the market. And then Saturday, August 17th, um, will be National Can It Forward Day um, at the Union Square Pol- Pavilion, um, and that's going to be a great day. They're going to be demoing how to uh, preserve all the summer bounty from the market. Um, and then the Frequent Shopper program got started last weekend. It's pretty popular. Um, customers stop by the market information tent at your neighborhood market and um, for a chance to win a bunch of prizes from the market. Um, and we're excited. Uh, each year in August, our bike blender kind of makes its rounds of the markets. Um, so Fort Green, it'll be at Fort Green this Saturday, August 10th. Um, and then it will be making the rounds of the Queen's Markets the following weekend, um, and then it will be at the Grand Army Plaza Green Market on August 24th. Uh, it's a great way to use um, ingredients from the market to cook something up and not have to turn on the hot stove um, in the, you know, the middle of August. But wait, what, I don't know, what is a bike blender? So it's a blender that's powered by a by a bike so people can hop on, pedal, um, and then the wheel um, blends whatever ingredients we throw into the blender. (laughs) It's a human-powered blender. Human-powered. Time for some pesto making. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So people can, folks can visit grownyc.org slash rmarkets to find out more information on those cooking demos, book signings, giveaways, and more happenings each week at the neighborhood markets. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out to give us the update, and we look forward to checking in with you next week. Thanks so much, Erin. Have a great week. So as she said, definitely visit them at www.grownyc.org backslash rmarkets for the latest and greatest. You can also check them out on your preferred social media stream. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, whatever gets you going. Uh, great way to stay in touch, get some beautiful pics, and then, of course, tune in next Thursday for another episode of the Grunway C Market Update. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 